If you have your Bibles, go with me to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1 will be in verses 1, 2, and 3. No worries, that will not be the pace at which we will keep for most of Jonah. Otherwise, we'd be here for like 30 weeks at least. Verses 1, 2, and 3. If you're there with me, let's go. It says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may you be greatly glorified in these next very brief moments. Father, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone in this room, I'm sure, at least I'm I'm optimistic here, is excited about working through Jonah. I'm just going to hold that out there for a few moments. Excited to be talking about Jonah. Jonah's a neat story. It's a wonderful little story. In some ways, it's a sad story. But for most of us, I think it sits as probably a wonderful story. Maybe even because we think, well, I'm not a runner like Jonah. I'm not called to go to the gospel or with the gospel to a place like Africa. And so I'm not running from God and what He has called me to do. I'm right here. I'm, I'm at church even on Sunday morning and I'm worshiping God and I serve in the nursery. I go to house gatherings. I'm a part of DNA. I, I'm not a runner. I'm not like Jonah. So let us please look at the story of Jonah that my heart might be greatly encouraged by this story. I'm not a runner. You know, we need to understand that in the Bible, particularly when it comes to stories, narratives, that the story probably, likely, or at least parts of the story represent uh, a greater reality, a deeper reality, a a principle, uh, something that's beyond just the pure, straight-level facts of the story. There's something there that God is teaching us. I'm not talking about some secret hidden message that you need to count every fourth letter to discover what it means or anything crazy like that. What I mean is that the story is intended to teach us something. You see, the kind of running that this story represents for most of us will never involve a change of geographical location. It did for Jonah. And for you it may. 
But indeed, I would say that even for those who it does involve a change of location, running from God for even you, the other 99.9% of your life will not involve a change of location. You see, we all have plans. All, every single one of us has plans. And we have plans every single day. We have agendas. For some, it's to avoid as much stress and doing and hassle as possible. That's still a plan. That's still an agenda. For some, it's to accomplish more than you could even feasibly accomplish for that day. But it's a plan. It's an agenda. All men and women make plans. But God has a way. God has this crazy, unique way of breaking into these plans. Maybe even these dreams that we have. However, again, I doubt that for most of us, most of the time. Matter of fact, I would wager that all of us, that this takes place not so much in the big events of life, but in the most mundane moments. The everyday moments of life that you and I either run toward God in joyful, God-centered obedience to His plan, or we run from God in evil, self-centered rebellion. And for most of us, this is not going to be a Tarshish, Nineveh decision. It's going to be in that conversation with our loved ones or the lost neighbor next door or the coworker who gets on your nerves. You see, God loves His children so much that in His mercy and because of His great grace, God oftentimes breaks into your rhythm of life, your agenda, and calls you to something else. And when He does, it exposes oftentimes something very terribly wrong with our hearts. Now, let me give a disclaimer as we continue. I, I don't want to get into this like uh, our will versus God's will is can we be operating apart from God's will, a permissive will. I, we're, I'm not going down that road, okay? For the record, I don't, I don't, just where I'm coming from, I don't believe there's a permissive will. I think you have God's will and that's what takes place. But nevertheless, as we're operating within God's will, we can still be operating from the motivation of self-absorption and self-centeredness. Even as a part of God's plan. So that's my theological nerdiness explanation for you just for the moment. Now back to here. So God breaks into our plans. He breaks into our self-centeredness. Something terribly is often exposed when he breaks in and calls us to something else. You see, moving as God wants you to move is where the pursuit of God-centered life begins. 
and where the shame of self-centered life is exposed. Let me say that again. You see, moving as God wants you to move, as you begin to do that, whether, again, whether that's in your heart, your emotions, your thoughts, actions, whatever the case is, that's not limited to moving to Nineveh or to Tarshish, but moving as God wants you to move is where the pursuit of God-centered life begins and where the shame of self-centered life is exposed. It's brought to the surface. Let's keep that in mind as we work through this. The first thing I want you to see from Jonah's story here is that maturity moves toward difficulty. Understand the call of God. Maturity moves toward difficulty. Understand the call of God. Now listen, I'm speaking generally. I think it's a general principle for us to understand here at the beginning of the book of Jonah. That maturity moves toward difficulty. Understand the call of God. You see, Jonah's response to God was to run. Right? God called him to do this. He runs. But let's think about Jonah's life here for a few moments. Jonah has a good life. He grew up in a good Israelite home where he quickly grew to love God. Eventually, God birthed in Jonah this desire for ministry. Jonah became then subsequently a great servant of God, a, a prophet from Gothhefer. Go read 2 Corinthians 14. It's a great example of the ministry of Jonah. And the people, imagine this, the people he was speaking God's word to wanted to listen. This was a good life, particularly for a prophet. Now I doubt that it was perfect. I imagine that he still had everyday struggles. So we don't want to paint his life as some, you know, dream life. But we want to understand that he's operating in what appears to be a good, a good Israelite life. Probably like many of us in this room. Not pristine. Our lives aren't perfect. None of us would say our life is perfect. But we'd probably be very quick. Oh, you know, things are good. I have a good life. Or at least we operate as if though that's the case. The problem though is this. Jonah was unaware of how self-centered and self-absorbed he had become. He's ministering. And don't, and guys, let's be careful. Don't limit this to clergy. We're all called to be ministers of God. So he was doing God's work and completely unaware of how self-centered and self-absorbed he had become. It took God moving into Jonah's life for that to be revealed. He was a man who had been doing great things for God. He was caring for other people. He was a prophet. He would, listen, he, this is how his life went. He would hear a word from God. He would tell that word to the people, and the people were responding well. Like, that's a great place to be. But in the midst of this ministry, his own heart had grown cold, 
very cold. Now, I don't know if you're hearing the warning here, right? The warning is you and I could be doing great things for God and have very cold hearts. But Jonah's response to God was to run. It's very easy then for us in self-righteousness to kind of look down on Jonah. At least I'm not a runner. At least I am here, right where God wants me to be. I'm in church and I'm doing these faithful things and I'm raising a family or I'm interacting with other Christians and living in community. I'm not a runner. So what we need to think as we look at Jonah here, what we need to understand is that this call of Jonah on his life was going to be hard. Like what he was calling Jonah to do is going to be difficult. Listen, I'm sure that Jonah, like it's not just, oh, I don't want to do that, God. This seems more fun to me over there. I'm sure when he looked at Nineveh, he was scared. Like he was out of his mind, fearful. I mean, think about this. He's going, his new calling is to go preach judgment to the enemies of God. You see, the Assyrians which is the, the, the kingdom that he's talking about going to. This is one of their leading cities. Nineveh was, the most, like the, was historically considered the most violent center of the Assyrian Empire. Most violent. Think about that for a moment. In Nahum 3.1 it says, Speaking of Nineveh, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. That's what Nahum has to say about the city of Nineveh. And God calls Jonah to move from a life of pronouncing blessing on God's friends to the work of pronouncing judgment on God's enemies. That, I'm sure, for Jonah would mean embracing an unrecognizably different life. Completely different. The wickedness of Nineveh was quite clear and before the eyes of the Lord. Now listen, I'm not trying to get us to not feel so bad about Jonah's rebellion. Which I know is like, in our sick, twisted world, that's what we want to do. We want to, like, we start to sympathize with the offender. Oh, well, no wonder he ran. Like, that makes sense now. Not, like, we got to get that out of our minds. It's not what I'm trying to do. We need to not feel any worse about Jonah's rebellion. We should not minimize his sin. But what we also should not do is look at Jonah and go, well, at least I'm not a runner. What we need to notice is this, is that God's call oftentimes, I don't know if I want to say most often, but very much often times is a move toward difficulty. Is a move towards something hard. And you and God calls us oftentimes towards something hard. Listen, I, I would I I want to define like hard like and give examples. The the I, I would I I want to define like hard. 
I can give examples. The, the danger is that what's hard for someone might define like hard. I can give examples. The, the danger is that what's hard for someone might not be hard for someone else, and what's hard for them might not be hard for this person over here. So for this person, it might be more about an emotional difficulty. Like what God's calling them to there is maybe physically easy, but emotionally hard. And what God's calling this person to might be emotionally easy and mentally easy and physically hard. But God calls us, that's the beauty that I'm getting off script here. and I'm trying not to go over time today, but God knows us intricately. He knows what's hard for us. He knows the, the next thing we need in our journey of faith. He is all wise and all loving. He knows these things about us. Now, I do want to give us a warning here. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean that's God's plan, okay? Don't, don't take this to the extreme. Just because it is difficult doesn't mean, well, that's certainly the path that God's got to take me, right? The road less traveled, that's, that's clearly the one I'm supposed to take. Not always the case. But what I want you to see is that Jonah here chose to run from God, chose to, to get out of Dodge, if you will. And it's very easy for us and self-righteous to look down at, on Jonah. And what I want you to see is that God will regularly call you to something hard, something very hard. I would argue that God's calling you to something very hard every day, many times a day. I don't know about you, but just as a quick example, dying to myself, my desires, is something God has called me to do every day and is something very hard. Let's think about this idea of something very hard. You see, your Christian life, your Christian, particularly your maturity, is not measured by your Sunday morning attendance house gathering discussion or your participation in a DNA gathering. Now, it's going to seem like I'm contradicting a little bit of what I just said. I don't believe I am. Listen, this stuff is easy. Like these things we should be doing easily and naturally. Not, not, like, not that there's never uh, an ounce of I don't want to. That's not what I'm getting at. But these things, this is not a measure of your maturity. It's the easy stuff doesn't define your Christianity, your maturity. It's the difficult stuff where your maturity is defined. If you want a measure of your maturity, take a look at how you respond in difficult situations. What comes overflowing from your heart, and then how do you respond to that with truth and grace? That's, it's in that place that maturity is measured. So how are you responding to the hard things? That neighbor that drives you up the wall. How do you respond in that hard thing? How about sacrificing sports ball so your children understand the importance of the gathered church? How are you responding in that difficult situation? How about having that hard conversation with a church member when you'd rather just forget about it and move on? How are you responding to the hard things? How about submitting 
in whatever arena you're in, even when you don't understand or have all the facts, how are you responding to the hard things? Men, leading your family from conviction rather than convenience. How are you responding in the hard things? Or maybe repenting to your spouse or to a close friend when you know that it will be a hard and painful conversation. How are you responding to the hard things? Or how about this? When illness plagues your home, not necessarily sin-related or, or moral in a sense. Or job loss. How do you respond to the hard things? See, it's in those moments. like when, See, it's in that moment where it's a hard situation and the world is saying respond this way. And you have an option to either run towards the hard thing and towards God's call to respond in a way that honors Him, or you have the option to run from the hard things and either respond by not addressing it or respond poorly to the situation where you are indeed running from God. The question is, is how do you respond in these hard things, in those hard times? That's where we start getting into the measure of your maturity. How are you responding to these hard calls? How are you responding to these difficult situations? You see, in the midst of these hard things and our response to them, hear me clearly, that we see that we are more like Jonah than any of us would ever want to admit. When God interrupts your life, He begins to break. He's going after whatever form of idolatry, whatever form of desire that you have that is not in keeping with Him. When God calls you to something hard, your idolatry is what brings in this tension. Like, I I want this plan. I want to respond this way. I want this outcome. And God's saying, no, that's not my plan. This, colliding with this, brings this tension. You see, the plans are not hard because God is just out to be difficult. It's often difficult because our hearts are hard. Because we want something else. And many times we're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Like finding a boat, parked or docked at a port, and sailing to another place. You see, you will miss out on Jonah if the first thing we do is try to distance ourselves from Jonah. If we try, oh, that's Jonah here, and, and I'm here. You will miss out on the rest of Jonah. You see, I can be having a conversation, I'll give you a couple examples, with my leaders who aren't convinced by my awesome wisdom and decision-making And refuse to humbly converse about whatever issues. And in response, be running just as hard as Jonah. Or I can be looking at my children who aren't convinced that 
They need my guidance. We talked about this in the parenting class, right? Oh, mom and dad, great source of wealth and wisdom. Please, let me come speak to you. They're not convinced. And instead, instead, listen to me, instead of being broken over their lostness or their lack of sanctification, instead of being broken over that and running towards grace and them, I'm angry at their inconvenience the inconvenience they're causing me and be running from God just as hard as Jonah did. See, Jonah is in the Bible because he's just like you and he's just like me. We all want to run away from God's call. We all want to run away from the hard things that he has called us to do. But we need to realize that running away from God's call is a run from His presence. And a run from His presence is a run from His grace. Listen, this path of running away from God is not a good thing whatsoever. And instead of running from God, we need to, and we're going to, right, you understand, like I understand, Let me say this next point, and then I'll caveat it. We need to embrace God's call. There's nothing for you to fill in there. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to add a comma, and I want you to add to the end of that line. Embrace God's call, comma, the place of God's presence and grace. Embrace God's call, the place of God's presence and grace. You're like, now, now, I, I know, some of you are like going, all right, embrace God's call. That's fantastic. How? Right, we just calm down. We'll get there, okay? Calm down. I can see, like, the anxiousness. Particularly all my, you know, type A people. Embrace God's call, the place of God's presence and grace. Jonah's response was what? To run to the other side of the earth. Okay? That was his response. He ran to Tarshish. Why? Like, so everybody think, ask the question, why? Why did, he, why did he run there? Why did he run? Why not just stay in Nineveh? I'm sorry, just stay in Amittai. There you go. Sorry, not stay in Nineveh. Why not just stay where he was at? You see, a refusal to go to Nineveh meant God was not going to use him as a prophet. Like, you don't get to just say, God, no, I will not do that. Like, his rejection would be rejecting God's call on his life. So to stay there, he couldn't. Because he couldn't just stay there and then give false prophecies, right? If he stayed and gave false prophecies, he would have been what? Stoned. He would have been killed. However, if he stayed and kept quiet, others would have known something was wrong. Either way, if he stayed here in Amittai, he his struggle, his sin would have been exposed. It's a, I have a side note here. It's, it's interesting to me that we believe often that we can refuse God's plan in one area of our life and expect God's blessings to continue flowing in every other area of life. Just... 
Something doesn't make sense. I, I do it myself, but something doesn't make sense to me. So jo- Jonah couldn't stay here. He had to run. God's call on Jonah exposed that Jonah, even in the midst of doing good things in a good place, had grown hard and a self-absorbed, and this would have come to the surface. I want to take this moment to point out to you this. Nothing is more disturbing to a comfortable faith or even a comfortable church than God's passion for the broken. His passion for the world, the lost. You see, we sit here and say, oh, this sounds good, but not me. Jonah was happy to serve where he was comfortable. But when Jonah was called out of his comfort spot, his heart was exposed. He had lost touch with God's heart and God's mission in the world. Jonah was way out of touch with a God-centered life. But no one, not even the prophet himself, would have known it until God stepped in. So the question we ask today is this, are you in touch with God's heart? Are you in touch with God's plan? Particularly His plan for the lost, for the broken people around you. Jonah, though, was delusional. Look at verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the what? The presence of the Lord. This is what sin does. Sin makes us want to flee from the presence of the Lord. It makes us crazy. Why would we ever want to do that? Why would Jonah, who's been, who's been hearing from God and speaking to God's people, leading God's people, why would he want to run from the presence of God? I think ultimately, because Jonah thought that he could run from God without any consequence from God. Like sin makes us truly believe that we can make whatever decision we want to make and God will leave us alone. And there will be no consequences. I see this all the time in my own life and in the lives of those we oftentimes shepherd. I can make these decisions and expect that nothing's going to happen. Listen, when you look out in your life and you look out and you look around, you look out on the horizon, and it seems not so delightful, right? You're looking... And it seems, oh, I don't like that, I don't like that, I don't like that. When work, family, your church, your neighbor next door, nothing seems to be what you had hoped for. A new life in a new place can seem like an attractive option. Jonah thought so. Jonah, I mean, listen, Jonah's convinced that this is a good idea. We'll get to that in a second. When you feel like you're no longer appreciated or that the hard work 
is bringing little reward or the temptation to slip away from the tie, or when this happens rather, the temptation to slip away from the ties and commitments that define your life will be very real. Listen, the ship to Tarshish looks attractive. But you need to remember one thing. It's headed into a storm. Jonah was delusional, and oftentimes we are too. So how do we, how do we embrace God's call? Right? So we, how, do we, how do we actually do this? How do, we, how do we move towards God? How do we run towards God in grace? And, and instead of running from God, and how do we think about such things? I want to adapt a couple points from Paul Tripp. I think this is really helpful for us. How do we move from running away from God to running toward God? The first one is this. We need to see sin as God sees sin. See sin as God sees sin. Now listen, this is going to be in uh, a long journey. Like, how do we see sin as God sees sin? It's going to be something that's ever increasing. We will never arrive at this. Note that Jonah served God. But along the way, right? Along the way, somewhere in Jonah's mind, he begins to set boundaries for God. Right? My service is going to be in this place. The service is going to look this way to these people. The how he would serve. He's setting all of these boundary markers. That's got to look, my life has got to look this way, God. And eventually, God exposed his selfish heart. You see, Jonah was sinful in his heart while his actions looked very noble. I wonder how many of us serve wherever. Like, guys, I'm not just thinking Sunday mornings, not just thinking nursery, although certainly it's included, but your home, your family, when you go to work, whatever the places where you're called to serve. I wonder how many of us serve wherever, and yet we have set so many restrictions on that service that it's really our service has just become about us. If I don't get enough gratitude or recognition for my service, it's about me. You're setting restrictions on your servitude. Where you will serve, how long you will serve. I'm not talking about like exercising wisdom. Certainly we have extents and only certain abilities. But, but even there we have to be careful that we're not just doing it for ourselves. Setting boundaries on what God would call us to do. But here's, we're thinking, if you're thinking about seeing sin as God sees sin, we're thinking about individually, Jonah, how did he see sin? He didn't, he was not convinced of his own sin. He had convinced himself that he was not sinning. You'll say, how do you, how do you know that? We'll get to that in a second. He was very skilled. Listen, we are very skilled, just as Jonah, at telling ourselves that sin is less than sin. We need to see sin as God sees sin in our own lives. You see, it's a personal recognition of sin 
that fuels confession. And when we miss out on confession and the forgiveness and the grace and all of that, that we're fleeing from the presence of God. Just like Adam and Eve, right? They wanted to go hide from the presence of God. Why? Because they didn't have a personal recognition of sin. They had known something had done wrong. They had done something wrong. So there's this recognition there, but but like as God comes, right, what do they do? They run, they hide. And then when God says, What have you done? He's well, the woman did this. What's he doing? He's he's not convinced that he's the sinner. Now listen, if you don't have a lifestyle of confession, it's because you don't see yourself as a sinner in need of God's grace. So individually, Jonah was not convinced of his sin. Corporately, Jonah did not see Nineveh's sin as God sees it. Corporately, Jonah did not see Nineveh's sin as God sees it. Listen, they were broken people in need of redemption. What is Jonah seeing them as? I'm sure it's a myriad of things, but it's certainly, these are enemies of God. They need to be wiped out. Let me ask you this. I'm going to get real personal and maybe even political here for a second. All right? When we dropped those missiles, I'm not saying that was right or wrong. What was your first response? Was it brokenness over those people? Those sinners in need of God's grace? Or was it, oh good, I'm glad we got them. Because there, there's, there's a measure of justice and the government is supposed to be a part of some of that. I, listen, I, I'm not getting into extents of that, none of that stuff. Oh, here's what I don't care about. What was your heart's response? Because Jonah's response was, they should just all go to hell. So I'm going to go to Tarshish and say it. So I'm, again, just hear me clear. I'm not saying that what the, we did was right, wrong. I'm, I'm not getting into that. What I'm talking about is your heart. What came out of the overflow of your heart in that moment? Listen, I'll admit, for me, there was this measure of... of um, Good. Now, and then as I thought through this, I'm like, all right, so I don't know all the facts. I don't know if that was good or not. I, knew we, I know we need to stand up for the helpless and the people who can't care for themselves and those who are dominating, and we need to do all this. I, I, I know that, but, but I noticed in my heart, like it wasn't broken, like over the sinfulness of all the people involved. And the fact that their need of rescue, ultimately, that there were people that dead now who maybe never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Now, there's a range right there, and I, I don't have time to get into all that, but like, what I want you to see is I want you to think, how did your heart respond Jonah's responded with, they can just go to hell. Instead, how does God respond? How does God respond? I want you to go. 
They were broken people in need of redemption. That's what they were. Let me give you another example. You know that one coworker that just gets on your nerves? You see them as an irritation instead of looking at them as a lost person desperately in need of God's rescue. They are broken. They are slaves to those evil desires that keep irritating you. They don't need someone to be short and huffy with them. What they need is someone to share the gospel with them. That's what they need. I'm not saying that what they do is right or wrong. I'm not, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about is their life, just this great moral display and of honoring God. That's not what I'm talking about. That's a different issue. I'm talking about how is your heart responding to that? As Jonah is saying, they can just go to hell. And God's saying, I want you to go deliver them from hell. Right, what's he doing? That Jonah going again from preaching God to people who are welcoming it to people who hate God. And in, in Jonah's, I mean, in all likelihood, they're going to kill Jonah. I mean, that's, it, that's not an unreasonable expectation for Jonah. I go there, I'm going to my death. Do we see sin corporately as God sees sin? When you see them as a sinful people in need of rescue and redemption, then you will see them with the compassion that God sees. But we need both. We need both confession and a recognition of our own sinfulness and a compassion. Because without it, without those things, a recognition of our own sin and compassion on those who are sinners, we will run from God every time. Number two, we need to develop. Again, how do we embrace this call? See sin as God sees. Two, develop a convictional commitment to God's plan. Even thinking practically here. I want you to notice something. Notice how natural Jonah's rejection to God's plan was. You want me to go there? Well, I'm going here. For many in this room, our convictional commitment to God's plan is oftentimes limited to some very simple, easy things. Listen, I'm going to I'm just going to, if I hadn't stepped on your toes already, I'm going to get the rest of your toes, okay? Church on Sunday morning, that's kind of my convictional commitment to God's plan. Maybe on top of that, I, I pray before every meal I eat. Read a devotional. Maybe house gathering, DNA, something like that in there. That, that's kind of my, I'm kind of convictionally committed to these parts of God's plan. But maybe even in the midst of that, it's got to be your plan. Like, it's got to fit your part of the plan. But oftentimes, for many of us, beyond those few things, it would call us to ask ourselves, what's motivating those things? What is defining those things? What, what, how are we responding in anything outside of those situations and within side of those three examples I gave? 
Like, is there convictional commitment defined by the Scriptures that's guiding all of those other things that we give ourselves to and the way we give those, the way we give ourselves to those? I know this is an extreme example that will not fit anybody in this church, at least I don't think. There was a Babylon Bee this past week that I thought was actually really helpful. The, the title was this, After 12 Years of Quarterly Church Attendance, Parents shocked at daughter's lack of faith. Right? I don't think that's going to strike anyone in here. But, we, we, have to, we have to ask ourselves, like, what are our practical, convictional commitments? What are they? How are they shaping our life? How are they moving us towards God? Or are they moving us away from God? You're going to see why this is so important in just a second. Let me speak very even more pastorally here, pressing in a little bit more. I see in so many lives, even in this church and outside, where we are developing and living by so many convictions that simply don't matter. All the while letting the ones that should matter go by. I'm going to hold back from giving examples. We want to chase after all these other things that are, that are not necessarily bad. All the while letting these other ones that we should be hard after, clearly, by the Scriptures. I want to encourage you to assess and think. Developing a convictional commitment to God's plan. Listen, here's the way the world thinks about life. Let me, let me help us, because this is going to be the battleground, right? This is the battleground. The world wants us to think about life with this question, or these series of questions. What do I want out of life? What do I want out of life? In my parenting, what do I want out of life for my kids? In church, what do I want out of my church? Think about your job. What do I want out of life? Listen, our lives are not meant to be driven by that question. But instead, our lives should be driven by this question. What plan does God have for my life? And the engagement of this world He has called me to. What is God's plan for my life? I, I think you'll find too, like, where, oh, what's God's will for my life? I think if you find, if, if you put most of your energy into just doing what He has clearly called you to, with no guessing game involved, you'll probably be too busy to worry about all the other things and what ifs and all that stuff. What is God's will for my life? I think if we spend time in here, for the most part, you're probably never going to get around to all these things that, you know, we just stick our finger up in the wind and try to figure out what God wants. So we need to wake up. Listen, we need to wake up every morning. Every morning asking this question, what is God's plan for my entire existence today? What is God's plan for my entire existence today? The words that come from my mouth, the actions of my, 
of my eyes, where they look, the emotions of my heart, my relationships with everyone that I come in contact with. What is God's plan? What is God's plan? We should ask ourselves, what is God's plan? If you don't wake up convictionally and practically asking this question and ask this question all day long, then your plan will be the driving plan every time. Then, as this goes on and on and on, it gets easier and easier and easier to say no to God's plan. Because you know what happens? Listen, whatever you're preaching to yourself is the center, is the driving plan. It becomes the filter through which everything you do happens. And if your plan becomes the filter then it functions in authority over God's plan, practically here. And it becomes the filter through which you go, okay, God, no, I will do that, or no, I will not, or I won't do it that way, but I'll do it this way. You know why it's so hard to share the gospel with your coworker or your neighbor? Probably because this call of God on your life gets filtered through your plan and it just doesn't fit. And so it gets rejected. I can't do that or I won't do it that way. I won't do it this way. I won't do it in this time frame. I won't. It gets, hits the filter of your sovereign plan and just gets discarded. We need to develop from the Scriptures convictional commitment to God's plan. We talked about this back in Ephesians, kind of exercising spiritual muscles, right? Like, the more you exercise, that's what we're talking about here, developing a convictional commitment to God's plan, practically what this looks like each day. I'm going to, I'm going to exert effort in God's grace to do this. I want to build those muscles. Number three. Ask God to give you a commitment to God's grace. Most of us operate with a commitment to our own glory. And that's really what this is juxtaposed with. We have a commitment to our own protection, our own security, our own glory, our own self-preservation. Like, that is our commitment. What we need is a commitment to God's grace. Jonah did not understand his own need for God's grace. The reality is most of us do not either. Instead, we need God to humble us and for Him to send us help. That's the story of Jonah. Jonah was prideful. I got this. I'm committed to myself, my own self-preservation. My own kingdom. I want that to continue on. So I'm going to go to Tarshish. What does God do in this incredible story? What's He do? He sends help. He humbles Jonah and He sends help to Jonah. We need this too. What's this help look like? Certainly the form comes in the spirit, the word, the body. We need God to humble us. 
for him to send us help. Our second to last point here, I want to give you a warning. Rejecting God's call will often feel like you've made the right decision. I don't think we can leave verses 1, 2, and 3 without noticing this. In verse 3, he says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let me not linger here too long. When Jonah made his decision, everything seemed to fall into place. He wanted to go to Tarshish. And when he arrived at Joppa, he found a ship bound for that port. I'm sure, listen, I'm sure that Jonah saw the perfectly awaiting ship as confirmation that he had made the right decision. So listen, the path toward disobedience will almost always feel like freedom, rest, peace, at least in the beginning. Listen, you can put it this way. There will always be a ship in the harbor ready to take you in the wrong direction. Don't confuse opportunity with the will of God. You see, circumstances can be helpful to one who is walking with the Lord, but they can also mislead the rebellious heart. So you cannot trust circumstances, particularly if you are resisting God's word. But I also want to point out this, neither can you trust your conscience either if it's not listening to God's word. Listen, what what happens to Jonah when he gets onto the boat? We see this later in the story. What happens to Jonah, like in the middle of the storm? What's he doing? He's sleeping. When Jonah gets on the boat, he falls into a deep sleep. Listen, it's hard to sleep when you have a troubled conscience. He's fleeing from God. He's a prophet of God. And now he's fleeing from God. But he falls into a deep sleep. The idea is that he's, he's fine. We have to assume that Jonah had succeeded not only in disobeying God, but in feeling comfortable with what he had done. His conscience was at rest. He was at peace. He had a great peace in following the self-absorbed impulses of his heart. You see, in seeking to protect himself, Jonah was walking into a world of self-deception from which it's not easy to escape. His self-deception had messed up his moral compass One person I read this week said this fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Losing that fear is the beginning of folly. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but losing that fear is the beginning of folly. He had lost this fear of God. His conscience had become fine with what he had chosen to do. So, let me ask this question again. You run from God Are you a runner? Never thought about fleeing to Tarshish? I have. 
You run from God all the time. I run from God all the time because oftentimes I don't have God's heart and neither do you. We don't think of ourselves as God sees us. We don't think of our neighbor as God sees them. We struggle in parenting because we don't see our children like God sees them. We love the things God hates and we hate the things God loves. What do we need? We need to beg, ask, plead God for a heart that beats like His. That's what Jonah needed. Jonah didn't just need to get on the ship and go to Nineveh. He needed a heart that beated like God's, that beat like God's. You see, we are more like Jonah than we realize. We debate with God concerning His plan. We reject the clear things we know we should do. We oftentimes are running from God because in our pride we are so convinced ourselves that we are indeed fine. But the beauty of the gospel is this. Is that by the merciful and gracious hand of God we are given new hearts. We are given new hearts. Those whom He has chosen to redeem, He gives them new hearts. And these new hearts, listen to me, slowly but surely begin to forsake their self-glorifying, self-absorbed, self-centered life for a God-glorifying, God-centered, God-motivated, God-loving life. Slowly, but Absolutely, surely, He does. And we're given this new heart, how? Through the work of Christ, right? You know, whether you realize it or not, the hardest thing in life, listen, the hardest thing in life for any human being will be this. The day we approach the throne of God the most difficult thing we will ever have to do is approach the throne of God. The day we must face this holy, awesome God. The day we must face the ultimate reality of our brokenness as it's measured against the holiness of our great God. Facing God is the hardest call God has placed on any of our lives. And He has placed it on every person's life. For many people, they will face this day on their own. You hear me? On their own. Nineveh was going to face that day on their own. And the verdict handed down to them would have been this. Depart from me, I never knew you. But for those whom God gives new hearts to, their brokenness, their sins have already been atoned for. It's been dealt with. And the verdict is what? Welcome home, my faithful child. Why? 
Because of who? Because of Christ. You see, the hardest thing we'll ever have to face has already been handled by our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you two things in closing that that means for us as we think about this part of Jonah. The hardest thing this side of eternity we must do is confess our unwillingness to do the hard things that God's called us to do. Right? That's difficult. It's easy to run the Tarshish. The hard thing for our sinful, prideful hearts is to confess our wrongness to God. Even with this new heart, we still struggle with this, right? Because we still want to maintain some measure of self-righteousness, some measure of I'm good without you, God. And so it's hard for us to say, God, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Please mend my broken heart. But what do we learn in the gospel? Is that we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear being rejected by God. That we can quickly go to Him. And we can confess it to Him. That we can repent and walk in faithfulness. As we face God this side of eternity, we are covered in the blood of Christ. And our sins have been forgiven. And we can confess these to God. Number two, because of our redemption, all the callings He is calling you to. What's He saying at the end of Ephesians, or middle way through Ephesians 2? That He's prepared these works for us to walk in. Did you hear that? The, the hard things that God has called you to, He's prepared these for you to walk in. And because of the blood, you can walk in these things. So indeed, walk in freedom. Walk in joy. I want to leave us with this thought. Jesus walked the hard road to Calvary. A road that you and I could not walk. We would have never made it. So that we could have a new heart. A new heart that sees sin as God sees. A new heart that's committed to God's grace instead of our own power and sovereignty. And new hearts that move toward maturity and embracing the various calls of God upon our lives. As we see defined in God's holy scriptures. So how do we embrace God's call? How do we embrace the difficult things He's called us to do. How do we do that, right? We run to Christ. We run to the blood. It's only because of the blood that I can confess my unwillingness to embrace God's call. And because of the blood, God will not reject us when we do that, when we confess it to Him. And it's because of the blood that we're giving new hearts that begin to desire God's call over our own sovereign plans. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
your kindness to us this morning. Father, I pray that as we sing and worship you this morning, that our hearts would begin to embrace your call and forsake, forsake our own plans and our own desires. Instead, the desires that are birthed from our evilness to embrace the desires in us that are given to us by the Spirit. And informed by the word, Father, help us to embrace these things. Help us to embrace the difficult callings you've placed on each one of our lives. The things that maybe we don't want to face, that we need to do. But Father, all throughout all this, let us test. Ask the Spirit to test our hearts. Ask the Spirit to temper our hearts. Ask the, let us ask the Spirit through the word to give us direction and wisdom and guidance and But Father, let us begin this journey with saying to you, we are more like Jonah than we want to admit. And as we do that, Father, send a great whale to rescue us. Send a great big fish to rescue us. Father, we need it. And Father, we know, we know that you are faithful to do that for your children. Give us hope. It's hope in the gospel and the good news of your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.